Okay, well, I, I want to talk this morning about John the Baptist, and we've read from both Isaiah 40 and from, uh, um, from Luke chapter 3. And there in Isaiah 40, we have this prophecy about the coming of, of, of the Lord. And of course, in those days, they didn't have uh, stuff like uh, motorways and, and things like that. The, uh, the the way to prepare a path, or the way to prepare uh, the the coming of a uh, um, of a great king, was to actually send a bunch of people out there to uh, clear the way, to to get it all leveled, get it all smooth, and then he came and, and came by. And John the Baptist is that voice. But if you notice, uh, it says in verse three of Isaiah forty. Prepare ye, that is uh, in the plural, you plural, prepare ye, you people, in the wilderness, the way of the Lord. So it seems that before the Lord's uh, coming, there has to be this preparation for him. And it seems to me that if Israel had really listened to what John the Baptist was saying, then the glory of the Lord in its full sense would have been, would have been revealed. But they, they didn't, and so as Jesus said, Israel didn't want to accept it, uh, and so Elijah, the Elijah prophet, must come again. And so it seems to me that this ministry of preparing the way of the Lord's coming, this crying out in the desert that Jesus is coming, is something that we do in our day, living as we do just before the, the Lord's second coming. And we can learn a lot about how we should be acting and what we should be doing and the spirit of which we should be doing, uh, which we should be doing it in, from having a look at how John fulfilled this prophecy. Because what I'm saying is that we have to fulfill that that, that same prophecy. So he cries out, uh, according to Isaiah 40, he cries out to Israel that they need to uh, they need to repent in that sense. They have to make their path plain, make it straight, etc. Uh, in another passage in Isaiah 58, cry aloud, lift up thy voice like a trumpet, and show my people their transgression. It's Isaiah 58 verse 1. And yet the message here is also that your iniquity is pardoned. That's Isaiah 40 uh, verse 2. Your iniquity is pardoned, and therefore you need to repent. So what he's saying is, look, you are forgiven, and therefore you should repent. Therefore you should make your path straight and your rough places plain. So then, uh, as I understand it, he's saying you have been forgiven in prospect, and that should elicit within you a repentance. And so that's really what's happened on the cross, that the world's redemption was achieved, and yet we still have to take that message of the world's redemption out into this world, and to appeal to people to, uh, if you like, claim what has already been made possible for them. And in our own lives, this is why we repent, because we know that that forgiveness has already, in a sense, been granted ahead of time. And I, I wonder if that's why Paul or Saul is called brother by Ananias, e even before his conversion uh, and his baptism. So then... John the Baptist and we in the last days are to cry, we're to cry out to, uh, to people to, to repent. But actually, throughout this part of Isaiah, you also read about God crying out and calling out uh, to, to his people one by one. 
In fact, even in verse 26 of Isaiah 40 in the Hebrew, you've got the same word where we read that God calls the stars or cries unto the stars by name. And I, I have written down here the whole uh, pa- stack of passages where God does the, the calling. 43 verse 1, 45 verses 3 and 4, 48 verse 12, 54 verse 6. My point is that we're told to go out and cry out to people to repent, but in fact God himself is crying out as well. What that uh, means to me is that God is behind our witness. When we feel that I can do it, I'm not uh, suitable, I'm not good enough, um, people aren't going to listen, the point is that God is is behind our, our crying out. Um, and what then was was his message? It was that they had to, uh, that, that the high places had to come down and the low places had to be lifted up. Isaiah 40 verse 4, um, the, the mountains and hills shall be made low. Now, quite often that, that phrase made low occurs in Isaiah and it's always talking about how in the day of judgment the proud and lofty will be brought low. If you want some references, Isaiah 2 verse 2, 2 17, 5 15, 10 verse 33, 13 11, 25 11, 26 5. I'm just making the point that the, the theme of Isaiah has been that in the day of judgment the proud and the lofty are going to be made low. And so he says here that now before the day of judgment comes, ahead of time, you've got to make yourselves low. And so what he's saying is that you've got to be humbled one way or the other. You either humble yourself now, or you'll be humbled in the day of judgment. Therefore, do it now. And there's a kind of an equality here, because the the proud, the mountains and the hills are made low, but the valleys will be lifted up to make a level plain over which the glory of God can can be revealed. And I, I think that may, in a sense, refer to a problem that some have the other way, of feeling that, who am I? I'm nothing. I, I'm no good. I, I'm just a, a sinner. I'm just an ordinary person. Nothing special about me. Who am I? And in fact, the message of the gospel and the message of preparation for the coming of the Lord is that that aspect of us must be lifted up that we are not just one of six billion or whatever who live on the face of this this planet but there's something special and unique about us something vitally and crucially important about us and God wants us for his very own and so there comes an equality that the, if you like, the, the over humble or, or that those with too low an impression of themselves are lifted up and the pride, the pride of man is brought down and then we get this equality, this equal uh, level plane over which the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And I think, incidentally, that indicates to me that the glory of the Lord being revealed, which is ultimately in the second coming of Jesus, all flesh seeing it together, that will happen when, not just when people have been baptized, but when the community of believers has come to some sort of equality, that level plane, and then the Lord's glory will be revealed now when John picks that up and starts preaching this message he uh, as the voice crying in the wilderness fulfilling all this he adds something practical to it 
as we just read in Luke 3, he says, And he who's got two coats should give to the one who has none. And he who's got food should give to the one who doesn't have food. So what he, how he's interpreting this idea of equality, the, uh, the mountains being made low and the valleys being lifted up to make a, a level plain, is that in a sense there should be a sense of equality within the community of believers. And of course Paul picks this up when he talks to the Corinthians about the collection they were taking for the poor saints in Jerusalem. And he talks about the manna, how some people gathered more manna and some people gathered less, but actually there was an equality because those who gathered more manna gave to those perhaps who were sick or ill, weak, who couldn't gather as much, so that in the end there was an equality. And I wonder, again, if that is some sort of condition that has got to be fulfilled in our community before the Lord returns. I don't mean by that that we all get an identical standard of living, but I mean that he who has two coats gives to him who truly has none. So that there is no uh, hunger and there is no going without clothing within the community uh, of believers. And it seems to me that that may be a precondition for for the Lord's coming so then let's go to Luke 3 and uh, and think a bit more how John how John preaches because his preaching his fulfillment of this commission to spread the gospel of the Lord's coming to prepare a path for him is a pattern for us who are going to fulfill this same prophecy in, in our last days and First of all, you note that he's out there to prepare a path, to make the crooked straight. It's not just about baptizing. That's why he says to, to the people who come and say, I want to be baptized. He says, well, the point is, guys, to change your life. That's the preparing of the way. And we do that preparing of the way, not just in, quote, preaching, but in helping each other to, to grow and to, to come to that situation whereby the glory of the Lord can be revealed uh, in our lives. Now, there's a tremendous intensity and urgency about John's preaching that uh, is very hard to, to miss. Incidentally, when he says in Luke 3 verse 4, which perhaps you have in front of you, uh, he says, make your path straight. I looked up that word straight, and nearly everywhere else that Greek word is translated immediately or forthwith. Make your path, your way in life, immediate, forthwith. Um, there's a, a sense of immediate response. And then verse 7, flee, he says, from the wrath to come. Well, what is this wrath to come? Well, that phrase, the wrath to come, turns up in a number of passages later on in the New Testament. First of Thessalonians 1 verse 10, the wrath to come is what comes at the second coming of Jesus. And you've got it twice in Revelation 6, 17, 11, 18. But there is a day of wrath to come when Jesus returns. And yet he says, flee from the wrath to come. And it's the picture almost of somebody fleeing from a wall of forest fire that's coming towards them. It's as if he's saying, look, it's, it's about to, to, to burn you up. Flee, run away from it. And yet... You know, you could say, well, you know, come on, John, that that wrath to come is was going to be at least two thousand years uh, in the future. And yet you're telling people to run away from it, like it's staring you in the face. And he perceived that judgment 
is in a sense being lived out now that's why he was telling people bring yourselves down if you're the mountains and the hills you've got to be made low because it's going to happen to you on the day of judgment so urgently do it now he's zooming his hearers forward in time to, to realize that in a sense we all stand before the day of judgment or the throne of judgment right now it's like he says when he sees Jesus walking towards him in, in John 1 uh, behold the Lamb of God well that Lamb of God this was a, a term the Jews would have understood as referring to the Lamb who was about to be sacrificed on Passover well it, it wasn't Passover and Jesus wasn't there and then going to be killed but it's as if John looked at Jesus and he could foresee what was going to happen that this man was going to be sacrificed as the Lamb of God and it's as if he's saying well look there he is right now he's, he's about to die when he actually wasn't right then about to die and so we face the wrath to come and so do people um, in this world and it's no good as perceiving judgment I think that's what John is saying as something at a some vague point in time in the future that yes it is physically going to come in the future but in essence it's right now and how we decide now, how we jump to the right or to the left in our day-by-day -day decisions is uh, really uh, the fulfillment of everything now. And so I'd like to uh, remind you that um, okay, you've got three ideas here. You've got fleeing and preparing a, wa a way fleeing and preparing a way and I, I wonder if you can think where in the Old Testament those three ideas occurred John says prepare a way and flee from the wrath to come preparing a way and fleeing well you might like to scribble down in your margin Deuteronomy 19 verse 3 Deuteronomy 19 verse 3 because there in Deuteronomy 19 verse 3 you've got um, the idea of the city of refuge but if you killed somebody accidentally you had to die for that but you could prepare a way that led to the city of refuge and you could flee from your judgment along that, along that way and come to the city of refuge now the city of refuge is the salvation that we have in Jesus it's picked up clearly Hebrews 6 verse 18 that we have fled for refuge to the Lord Jesus so that is the urgency of our position that's the urgency of our position that we are worthy of death and we all tend to think that we're little sinners that compared to him over there and her over there I'm actually a pretty good guy and we don't see that urgency just as people in this world don't see the urgency of what they have to do they don't get it as it were and yet we're all in a sense the same there is an urgency both in accepting the gospel for ourselves but there is an urgency for people in this world and an urgency that should be there in our message that you've got to flee you've got to do something real and something concrete and not just drift in life and I think that indifference and drifting are the great dangers of, of our age
Those people didn't really think they were under a death sentence for murder. But that's how it was. And what is that fleeing? Well, that fleeing was, as John explained, living a life that is in accordance with, with God's principles. So when the publicans and the soldiers come to him, he shows them how they should live in order to, as it were, flee. And I think it's interesting there that he doesn't tell those people to quit their jobs. I think it, if it had been me, I would have said to them, you can be a soldier and a follower of the true way of God. You can be a publican. But instead, he tells them to stay in those jobs and yet to live those jobs out with godly principles. So, for example, he says to these soldiers, be content, don't grumble about your wages. He expected them to stay in those jobs, but to live with integrity within that position that they found themselves in in life. And it seems to me that there's a kind of a juxtaposition there. He says, do no violence to anybody. The, the, the Russian Bible actually says, we're reading this on, uh, on Sunday when we uh, did this exhortation, um, the Russian Bible says, don't rape anybody, and don't grumble about your wages. It's as if we would all think, oh yeah, mustn't do any violence or, or rape anyone, according to the Russian Bible. Um, but, yeah, well, grumbling about your wages, that's just part of being human. That's what we all do. But he puts those things radically together, as if to say, look, the one is as bad as the other. Don't do any violence, don't rape anybody, uh, and don't grumble about your money. As if to say, look, the, the one is, is in the same category as the other, whereas we would say, no, those things aren't in the same category. <clears throat> that's just a little sin. That's just part of being human. So I, I think that it's a bit like Paul with the Corinthians. If, if I was Paul right in the Corinth, I would have hit them straight up on, you people are committing immorality at the breaking of bread, you're sleeping with each other, you're getting drunk, um, you have uh, all sorts of sexual perversion, you have false doctrine, you deny that Jesus even resurrected, you've really sort of lost it, guys. But instead, Paul starts by, <coughs> by, by talking a lot about, you're not united, you have divisions. And you don't have love. You, this is the whole of First Corinthians 1. You are divided. Well, I think I, I would have left that way down the track and said, look, let's get to the point. But he doesn't do that. He focuses on the, uh, uh, on the fact they were divided, as if to say, look, the, the things are um, all basically in that same category. So John says that uh, this Jesus whom he's preaching is going to come and divide the wheat from the chaff and burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's verse 17 of Luke 3. But of course those ideas about unquenchable fire and dividing the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats, this is all, as Jesus himself said, what's going to happen when he comes back. And yet, John says, this is happening really whenever you meet Jesus. When you meet this man, that's what he's doing. So as I say, the essence of judgment is going on right now. It's not as if, well, we do the best we can, and then when the Lord comes, the books are opened, and he sort of refreshes his memory, as it were, and, uh, and oh yeah, it's all brought up, and he makes a decision. The day of judgment, in that sense, is for our benefit, and, and not, for, not for his. So we are standing before the day of judgment right now, and of course, if we can only imagine how we would feel in that day, how we will feel, Nobody will be passive. Nobody will be indifferent. Nobody will, will be shrugging their shoulders. 
there'll only be one thing that is worth seeking for and that is to be in his kingdom and so it is right now with us we should see the starkness of the choice before us the wheat gathered into the garner or the chaff being burnt with unquenchable fire and incidentally I was thinking of the relationship between chaff or the husks and, uh, and wheat that they're pretty close to each other and seems to me that in this life therefore we're going to be rubbing shoulders nuzzling up against the chaff and yet the only way of ultimate division from that is the Lord's division at the day of his coming so John was successful in a sense because people flocked out to hear him and they were lining up there for baptism and yet he, he says to them you generation of vipers clearly alluding to uh, Genesis 3.15 about the seed of the, of the serpent so he wasn't exactly uh, polite to them but they didn't just turn away in offence or shrugged it off as the ravings of some fanatic preacher guy they responded and so time and again we, we see this the very height of the demand of Christ in itself convicts men and women of him it's why people in, in radical Muslim areas who maybe face death or persecution for conversion to Jesus almost seem more likely to do it than people say in a European culture or, or Western culture where there is not such a great uh, cost to pay for conversion and yet that's only because they don't perceive it it is there and the choice is just as real now there was another reason why I think John was compelling and that was his his humility he says that he he, had, he was not worthy to unlatch the, the, the uh, sandals of Jesus and in Matthew 3 he says verse 11 that he's not sufficient the RV says to carry the, the sandals of Jesus now apparently to carry the sandals of your master was the very meanest and lowest uh, job that a slave could do the, the lowest ranking slave did that and so for John he himself was nothing it was all absolutely all about the one whom he was preaching and to, to describe himself as the the one who bears the sandals but who is not even worthy to do that is really a sort of super humility that the, the one who bore the sandals was the lowest of the low and yet John says I'm not even worthy to do that now the very fact that we are witnessing to the coming of Jesus to others should of itself if we think about it humble us because who am I who on earth am I to be telling somebody else this wonderful news and it's strange very strange and sad that preaching work and particularly missionary work <coughs> has become something that unfortunately many churches seem to glory in and it seems to <coughs> attract with it a, a great sense of self-importance and puffing up when in fact the, the, the fact that we are witnessing to the coming of Jesus if we just say to somebody that you know Jesus Christ is going to come back we give him a tract or a leaflet that says that um, th th that is just such a wonderful thing an honor that we're called to have and I think if we perceive the height of that honor it will energize us to, to do it it's not a case that well we maybe maybe not somebody might listen to us or, or not and I think Paul was alluding to John the Baptist saying in Matthew 3 that he's not worthy or not sufficient 
when he says 2 Corinthians 2.16 that we are not sufficient to be the saver of the message of God to this world and yet we are made sufficient so we should all have that sense of insufficiency when they come to John and say, say you know, who are you he says he doesn't say well my name's John he says I am a voice that's all he saw himself as being I'm a voice you see in him that real humility and he says that he's uh, the friend in John 3 he's the friend of the of the bridegroom now in those days there was uh, a man called the friend of the bridegroom who went out and searched for a woman for the groom to marry he found her he introduced the two together he brought the families together he made all the arrangements for the wedding and then the wedding happened and that was it and John says that's that's him just bringing the two sides together as he says he must increase but I must decrease so it's easy to misread John I think to think that he was some hard hitting rowdy kind of preacher but I don't think so at all there's a tremendous humility in him now when he quotes from Isaiah 40 he says you know, if you repent, if you make the path straight, then all flesh shall see the salvation of God. But in Isaiah 40 verse 5, it's a bit different. It says all flesh shall see the glory of God. So he interprets the glory of God as the salvation of God, as if he perceives how God glories over saving us. And if you'd like to turn back to Luke 1 verses 77 and 78, you'll see that his father, John's father, Zacharias, had prophesied about this. And I'm going to read from the RV margin. He prophesied that John would give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins because of the heart of mercy of our God. And you might like to scribble that translation in your margin because it's very beautiful. Because of the heart of mercy of our God. So John understood that, that he was there to give knowledge of salvation. And so when Isaiah says and all flesh shall see the glory of God John says and all flesh shall see the salvation of God influenced of course by what his father had told him that all flesh would see the salvation of God because of the heart of mercy of our God so when John calls them a generation of vipers I wonder what tone of voice he said that in because I don't think he said it maybe in the way that we would guess he said it this was all part of his appeal to Israel to perceive the heart of mercy of our God and to allow God to glory over them in saving them that this is the, the joy of God, the glory of God to, to save men and women now reading through the record about John in John chapter 1 in the Greek text there's something that jumps out at you and it's something called the emphatic I to put it uh, simply in, in Greek um, and a lot of languages in, in Russian for example you don't have to keep using the actual word I you can do but because of how the, the verbs end you don't actually have to specify that I for example speak or I say or I do but if you stress the word, if you use the word I, then you are just drawing attention that, hey, look, this is really me. Like a teacher may say, I am speaking, y you be quiet. So, 
all the times this occurs is quite amazing throughout John 1 John says I am not the Christ I am not Elijah I am the voice I baptize with water I am not worthy he of whom I said I knew him not I came baptizing I knew him not I saw I am not the Christ I am sent before etc and what I'll take from that is that he had a very strong sense of his purpose he wasn't proud he wasn't sort of vaguely half-heartedly offering somebody a possible uh, relationship with God like uh, I suppose much of our preaching tends to be at times he had a sense of mission and what I'm saying is that we too in the, these last days should have a, a, des uh, a definite sense of mission that we are called to live out that Isaiah 40 prophecy that we're declaring the salvation of God we're declaring the coming of, uh, uh, of the glory of God and we are actively working at making the path straight we're like men beating the bush um, clearing out a path taking the rocks out leveling it out so that the procession can go evenly over it that's what we're, we're all about and when he says uh, John 3.32 that he testifies what he saw and heard that's picked up directly by John in 1 John 1 where he says we too should testify what we see and hear so he really is a pattern for our preaching John was preparing the way four times in the New Testament we read that that John was preparing the way for the Lord's coming and only that phrase to prepare the way for the Lord's coming occurs only one other time and that's in Revelation 16.12 where again in the last days the way of the kings or intensive plural there I think the great king the Lord Jesus from the east is to be prepared so we are doing that we really are. Every little witness that we make and every little bit of effort that we make to help our brethren and sisters and the world or whatever to prepare that way, no matter how insignificant it might, uh, it, it might appear, just the, uh, the email, the uh, giving out of a leaflet or, or whatever, it, whatever it might be, writing a letter or, or just talking, mentioning it to somebody, that's what we're doing. And we should have a very strong sense of, uh, of commission that we are out there fulfilling a prophecy that as, as we are crying to people's hearts, so in fact that is, that is God uh, behind our voice crying as well to them. And of course we ourselves, apart from crying out the message, have got to become part of that plane, that level plane where the proud parts of us are brought down and the the parts of us that can't really believe how good this good news is, that I by grace will be there, those parts of us have got to be lifted up so that in the end we come together and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Thank you.